Hi everyone, hope you're doing well. In today's podcast, I want to talk about postmodernism. And I wanted to first try to define postmodernism before going into some of the um, more specific elements uh, in some more depth. And then I want to conclude by talking about some of the problems associated with postmodernism. So I think the best way to describe what postmodernism is, is to begin by defining what is modernism or modernity. And modernity is simply a period in history that roughly runs from the Renaissance until the end of the Second World War. Although there are many differing definitions precisely of when it started, when it ended, but that is a a good approximation. It's a period in history defined by a number of different elements and developments. So first of all, there's growing globalization of the world as manifested through imperialism and colonialism. There's the emergence of global trade, and that was really fueled by innovations in technology. There's also this sense of scientific progress throughout this era. There's the development of the scientific method. There's this idea that we can use logic, we can use reason to progress society. And there's confidence in empirical truths, the idea that we can discover Uh, underlying reality accurately and precisely using the tools of science and we can use science to essentially solve problems in society. It's also an era of uh, decline in religious authority. There's loss of faith in this idea of divine revelation, the idea that we can depend um, on tradition faith um, in religion to explain, particularly the natural world, but also the social world. So there's this belief ultimately that religion as a social institution will eventually die out and will be replaced by a more secular way of looking at the world. I have mentioned technology. Uh, This of course was a very, very important part of modernity. Think about specific technologies, invented in the 19th century, if you think about the steam engine, the development of railways, if you think about um, the emergence of industrial machinery, um, we're talking about a period where there's significant improvement in people's quality of life with the birth of capitalism, but that was also um, brought with a lot of pain, right? There was significant upheaval in people's lives as people moved from the cities, sorry, from uh, rural environments to the cities. There was very entrenched poverty, particularly during the era of uh, the early stages of uh, industrialization, and very high mortality and the use of child labor. So very, very slowly, people's quality of life and standard of living lifted. Um, But there was the sense that... um, progress would continue, right, economically, and people's lives would significantly improve. Um, Now, that forms the backdrop to postmodernity, of course. And in postmodernity, there's many different ways of describing, defining this idea. Some simply define it as a period in history or an era. Some of them, uh, some ways of thinking about postmodernity, tend to stress more it's a way of thinking about contemporary social life. It's a set of theories, a set of of concepts that helps us to explain uh, the contemporary world. 
And as we're going to see, there's many different sub-elements um, to postmodernism, uh, post which I'll go through shortly. I should add that um, postmodernity as a school of thought, it was inspired by many different academic disciplines, media studies, cultural studies, philosophy, history, uh, linguistics. So when we talk about postmodernism, it's important to acknowledge that it's not just one thing. There is actually um, significant disagreement about what this idea means, and different theorists have very different ideas that are often incompatible with each other. And I think that's a really important important point to acknowledge because I think um, postmodernity has been um, misunderstood in many important ways. So when we're talking about postmodernity, I think a nice general way of framing it is skepticism, skepticism about modernity in particular. There's the sense that contemporary society is undergoing unrelenting change at a very rapid pace, and that's causing social problems. It's causing a crisis in people's sense of belonging in the world. It's creating a crisis of meaning, where people feel that they can't live fulfilling, authentic lives. There's a sense that society is defined by increasing levels of unpredictable risk that individuals have to increasingly bear, as opposed to communities or public institutions like the welfare state. There's a crisis um, of meaning in a second sense, um, a crisis of knowledge where people are distrustful of science, um, they question its authority. There's the growth of fake news where people do not understand common political events, developments in the same way because they're dependent on radically different sources of information that are incompatible. and People are losing faith in the capacity to discern what the truth is um, and even to be able to defend it um, in the face of growing skepticism. There's the sense um, as well that economically progress has stalled. The promises of modernity have not been fulfilled. And we see this uh, in the Western world in particular over growing concerns about private debt, insecure labour markets, the decline of welfare institutions, stagnating incomes, downward social mobility. So people feeling like they're constantly treading water, if not going backwards. And there's a sense that society is becoming more unequal as well. So there's this division between people who have been able to take advantage of the economic changes that have happened since the 1970s, the demise of, of um, uh, the industrial economy, the rise of the so-called knowledge economy, uh, where people who have been um, more highly educated have been able to um, really lift their incomes and lift their social status and really uh, leave lives, lead lives that are very rich and rewarding. And that's compared to people who have been left behind, who find themselves maybe in stagnating or declining uh, towns, cities, villages, who uh, suffer from a scarcity of good quality jobs, well-paying jobs, and who feel um, a downward, um, a downward movement right in their quality of life, their standard of living. So, postmodernity, you know, it's really about the sense of of skepticism. It's about this the sense of of loss and decline. And postmodernity, I should add, you know, does ask very pointed, important questions. 
about uh, the modern world. Um, so you'll see in the slides, but I've actually provided some examples of this. Uh, you know, the distinction between modernism and post-modernity um, on, um, on slide three. Um, if we take, you know, faith in science, for example, what the postmodernists would really point to is, well, actually, if we look through the history of science, there's been many examples where scientists have not been acting uh, in a spirit where they're trying to progress human knowledge, you know, they're acting benevolently to improve the world. Rather, um, they've actually engaged in scientific practices which are very unethical um, and which actually caused harm. So, for example, a lot of uh, our research, our knowledge about uh, hypothermia actually comes from the experiments that were done in Nazi concentration camps. So what postmodernists really point to is the importance of power when trying to understand, um, you know, the direction and the pace of scientific knowledge. Who is being excluded by scientific inquiry? Who's being potentially disadvantaged? If we have a look at um, technology as a vehicle of societal progress, this is a really strong theme in modernity. They would point to examples like social media, where uh, there have been some very dark sides in terms of people's mental well-being, but also in creating um, political divides and polarization. So this, the sense of faith in technology has been really eroded. Um, I won't go through all the examples in the slides, but you really get the point that I'm trying to um, drive here. There's this real deep uh, skepticism um, about the modern world, and I think it's really important to acknowledge it. So I'm going to go through a couple more specific elements of, of postmodernism. I've already talked a little bit about the decline in this belief in societal progress, which was a very, very important feature of modernity. Um, if you have a look throughout uh, the Enlightenment era, you look at figures like Francis Bacon, for example, they had this really explicit narrative of societal progress, which they often tied to the decline of religion, the emergence of the scientific method, the development of greater democracy. And instead, you know, they would point to, the postmodernists would point to the dark side of this. So, well, there clearly has been improvements in quality of life, standard living, but look at the cost. That's often been associated with this. So if we have a look at the current ecological crisis, if we look at our destabilizing climate, if we have a look at narratives of progress and how that was tied to justify colonialism, imperialism, they would really point to this, this fact that actually, you know, societal progress according to whom, right? I think that's very much uh, an open uh, and important question. Um, and when you have a look at a number of really central debates around science and technology, um, you can really see this postmodern point coming through, right? So, you know, should we be developing killer robots? Should we be engaging in AI research that runs the risk of uh, AI, you know, bots uh, or you know, technologies uh, taking over uh, human beings, replacing us somehow, you know? matrix style should we geoengineer the earth right to uh, try to offset the carbon pollution that we've created should we be colonizing other planets um, as our own earth 
uh, you know, degrades in terms of its ecology and climate. Should we be genetically engineering genomes of plants, right, to improve agricultural yields? Should we be genetically designing children, right? These are really important ethical questions, but are being raised um, by the postmodernists. So a second pillar of the postmodernist approach is a commitment to relativism, right? So in the era of modernity, there was confidence in knowledge, right? There was this belief in the scientific method as a way to objectively and universally understand how the world worked. But instead, postmodernism says, well, it, when we really think about truth, we need to think about the relationships, the social relationships, where claims of truth are, are contested between different groups of people. And how does power influence and shape this, right? So, you know, a clear kind of statement of relativism, I think, is fake news, where increasingly, at least in the Western world, we've lost confidence in the media um, as an objective institution which relays fact. And instead, people seem increasingly committed um, to alternative and very, very radically different and opposing viewpoints on the world. And that makes political compromise very, very difficult you know, um, as a way of resolving, fixing societal problems, because people are starting from radically different um, first principles, right, about the world. You know, does climate change exist or not? So when there's no common ground, when there's no way to resolve disputes around fact, uh, let alone around differing moral views about what's right and wrong in a given context, there's no solid foundation for our beliefs, right? So I think that's I think that's a really important point that the postmodernists raise. And I should add, you know, there's this lazy critique of postmodernism saying that there's no such thing as truth whatsoever. Rather, what they're saying is that we should be more modest and careful in our claims to truth. Um, we should be more open to the idea that there can be different ways of defining what the truth is, given times, given contexts. Um, and maybe we need to really be thoughtful about the assumptions that we're, we're bringing when we're making claims to truth. So a really important tool that I think the postmodernists use is the idea of deconstruction. Um, and this was really pioneered by a couple of the French postmodernist uh, post um, theorists. So we think about people like uh, um, Baudrillard, for example, or if we think about people like Derrida, when we're trying to understand any text, any cultural text, you know, a novel, a book, or even uh, a speech, you know, anything that, that someone is saying or claiming, we should ask certain critical questions. Are there any other understandings that are being marginalized or excluded in a particular way of thinking about the world? Are there any internal contradictions or hidden assumptions that are being made in a position? Can we push a truth claim to its maximum to uncover any problems of the argument? Are there any exceptions to the rules that are being asserted as part of a truth claim? Um, does that reveal anything important about how society works? So it can be a very, very useful tool to um, think more critically, think more carefully about. The way that the world works. Another very important theme of postmodernism is the idea of identity. So 
in modernity, there was a sense that our identities were quite stable. You know, we were tied to a particular geographical location, typically a rural um, location that had very thick um, and strong ties between people that were really rooted in history, that were rooted in personal familiarity uh, with people. But in uh, the modern world, in the postmodern world, people are becoming more aware that there are multiple different identities that people can assume. We have more choice, right, over how we define ourselves. Um, and that's liberating, right? We're not tied down by, you know, uh, dogmatic tradition. Um, you know, we can, we have more confidence in our capacity to express difference. Um, and increasingly, societies obviously become more multicultural, multilinguistic, multi-ethnic as well, multi-religious. And that diversity has been very enriching. But at the same time, there's also the sense that our identities are more fragile, right? So, or that our identities are less tied and anchored to something that is comforting. Um, so if you have a look at Brexit, I think, a classic example of a, of a societal divide based on identity. So, you know, in the UK, where I'm from originally, if you have a look at the, the vote, uh, it was really tied... Um, very closely to level of education, less so to levels of income, and also geographical location, right? And I think part of that divide was um, not really a technical dispute around uh, the laws, the regulations, the powers of the EU, but a sense of collective identity. And there are people who, uh, because they had higher levels of education and were more socially mobile, more geographically mobile, felt more comfortable in having an identity that was less English or less Welsh, less Scottish, less British, and more, you know, cosmopolitan, more European, shall we say, versus people who had lesser levels of formal education, who were really tied, typically, to a specific place or location, who had a very strong regional sense of identity. And often, you know, these were places that suffered a lot of neglect um, and... Uh, you know, there was a sense of abandonment, right? And that identity conflict, you know, increasingly is, is shaping politics, the postmodernists um, would, would assert. Um, and that has really important implications, right, um, for the modern world. Consumerism identity, you know, this is very much this critique of consumer society, how it's making people very uh, unhappy. It's having a negative impact on people's mental health because it's um, asserting a very perfectionistic, if not unattainable, standard of how people should be um, in their personal appearance, in terms of their lifestyle. Um, and it's almost filling a void in um, people's sense of identity, you know, the loss of meaning that people uh, have in the modern world about what's valuable to them, what's important. And um, this has obviously been arguably exacerbated by social media. Um, which has really allowed advertising to infiltrate people's everyday lives in often ways that are very invisible. So, you know, consumerism, identity, um, you know, that connection is increasingly shaping uh, the way that we see our role in a community and the way that um, we interact with other people, right? So, you know, rather than finding value and purpose and meaning in the quality of our social interactions, you know, there's a sense 
uh, that we're kind of engaging in this competitive, you know, struggle, you know, to signal status, to signal wealth, uh, to signal um, our beliefs as well, right? Um, and the second kind of pillar to this is the sense that we're losing touch uh, on reality through our immersion in, in media, particularly social media. Um, so, you know, I think the classic example of this loss of meaning, this loss of um, reality, dare we say, comes in the work of Jean uh, Baudrillard, um, who wrote this famous um, text um, shortly after the Gulf War in 1991, where he said that um, the Gulf War was hyper-real. What he meant by that was it was the first war experienced in the West which was deeply, thoroughly televised. That was like the primary way in which people engaged with that war, unless they were you know, physically on the ground fighting. And that meant that it was open to manipulation um, very, very easy. And of course, there's always been propaganda, but um, the, the use of um, very flashy media um, techniques, strategies to kind of sway public opinion uh, was something that Baudrillard was very, very concerned about because he he thought the horrors of that war were kind of um, turned into a bit of a video game um, and uh, you know I think a really good example you know this this um, blurring of reality um, and and fiction is Disney World right another great example of, of consumerism where you know famously um, everything about Disney World is very carefully monitored um, and regulated so that you're creating a particular experience for people, right? So the things that the paid actors say and do, right? The set, you know, the background, the scenery, it's all kind of designed to immerse you in this fantasy world. That's what people are paying for, uh, but it's not real, of course, right? It, it's, it's kind of like a fake uh, experience. Another one would be, you know, reality TV. They give the gaze of this authentic, you know, real-world immersive experience in other people's lives. A lot of these shows are scripted, right? Partly, if not entirely, right? And that kind of, again, illustrates this blurring between reality um, and, uh, and fiction, right? The last thing, you know, this is um, something that's quite important. There's this idea that because our identities are not fixed, you know, by tradition or geographic location or our class, um, we have more freedom, right, to perform them, to challenge them, right, to um, to use um, the way that we present ourselves to kind of creatively challenge traditional identities. And that's something that can be very creative, uh, but it can also have a dark side too, right, where, again, this question of authenticity um you know, and, and loss of reality, right, is being uh, addressed here. Um, I think one last thing, or second last thing, I should say, that the postmodernists bring to the table is a real focus on the power of language, right? Historically, when we thought about political power, we thought about it as driven through charismatic people. Um, so, you know, you can think of people who better or for worse, who had charismatic personalities. So, you know, think of uh, someone um, like Donald Trump, you know, think of someone like Adolf Hitler, uh, you know, think of someone like uh, Margaret Thatcher, 
um, in the UK. Uh, think about Winston Churchill, right? Uh, think about Paul Keating, right? Um, Bob Hawke, right? There was a sense that um, political power is driven by people's charismatic authority um, and institutional power, right? So the power of institutions literally to coerce people to do certain things, right? Whether that's through violence or the threat of violence or, or just through the sheer efficiency through which institutions are able to, to get things done. But what the postmodernists had is a, is a focus on language, right? And of course, language has always been tied to um, power because whoever has the power to frame um, the way a problem is presented has a lot of control over how that, that issue is treated, right? by um, society as a whole. So, you know, climate change um, as a moral issue, as an economic issue, um, as an environmental issue, right? There's all these competing different frames and narratives. And, you know, one reason why there hasn't been any meaningful um, action on climate change, I would argue, in Australia is because the narrative is set that taking action on climate change will you know, uh, destroy um, people's quality of life, people's standard of living. There'll be absolutely devastating economic uh, upheaval. Um, you know, Barnaby Joyce, you know, not to pick on him particularly, but once infamously said that, uh, you know, with a carbon price, there will be $100 uh, roast lambs on your table. Um, you know, that, that framing is not um, an accident, right? It, it's a deliberate intentional right, to, to shape the way that pe the people think and feel about this issue. Uh, and you can either cause political change to happen or you can stall it from happening, right? So I think that is something that's very, very important for the postmodernists, focusing on how language functions, um, how it can be really used as a tool of power to present very selective understandings of reality, to privilege certain understandings of reality, and to really influence and shape uh, dare I say, control the way that people behave and the way that they, they view the world. The first thing, you know, links back to something I was talking about before, and it's it's often um, framed in this distinction of Fordism versus post-Fordism. Uh, so Fordism uh, was this model of economic development that was developed in the 20th century, but really stressed um, the idea that workers could occupy a position essentially for life. Uh, they would have regular pay increases, they'd have job security, uh, they'd have trade union representation, they'd be working particularly in primary and secondary sectors of the economy, so not services but extracting resources or manufacturing resources into, into goods. Um, and very much uh, a male-centered vision of economy as well, right? Where you have this division of labor uh, between men and women, with, uh, with men occupying the breadwinning role, and women being relegated essentially to the, the so-called private sphere of the home, where they'd be tasked with domestic and care work primarily. Now, you know, in the modern um, or postmodern world, work forces are much more fragmented, uh, rather than there being job security increasingly uh, there's more temporary work, there's more casual work, people being hired not to do a job, but a task, uh, within a, a broad world, um, and people don't 
security. They don't have that attachment that they used to have to their employer emotionally and, and financially. And there's increasing uncertainty about, you know, career progression. Uh, there's concern about, you know, stagnating incomes, very high levels of debt. Um, and there's a sense of constant competition. So you're constantly feeling responsible to upskill, to upgrade your, your qualifications, your skills, so that you're more marketable. You know, you can sell yourself to an employer, uh, literally, you know, through kind of marketing and branding yourself. Um, and, you know, this has led to a very important set of economic developments. You know, we've had growing inequality between people who've benefited from this economy. Um, so if you think about entrepreneurs, particularly in the technology space, um, versus people who used to work in uh, manufacturing roles, um, and there's a sense that, um, you know, workplaces are um, sites of, of a different kind of exploitation that maybe happened in the past, right? Um, there's a sense of, of greater vulnerability, uh, a sense of, of, of a power imbalance right, between workers and employers that didn't exist in the same way as it did um, before. So just to uh, wrap up, um, couple last points. I think um, one big challenge of postmodernism is because it does reject grand narratives, because it does reject the idea of universalism, there is a sense that morality is under uh, siege, you know, that it, there's this crisis in ethics because, you know, by their nature, ethical statements acquire their weight from being able to uh, be applied universally, right? So murder is wrong, right? As a universal moral norm, you know, if you, if people don't have confidence in universal principles, um, you know, then that, that sense of morality, um, you know, can be eroded. And maybe people will increasingly uh, feel that they don't have moral obligations to other people anymore, right? Um, so that's, that's a bit of a worry, right? From a left-wing perspective, you know, postmodernists have been criticized for being very obscure in their writings, and that was a deliberate intentional strategy because they they wanted to resist the idea that as a postmodernist theorist, I believe in this, right? Because that would be kind of contradictory of what postmodernism is about. But the downside to that is that their writings, you know, particularly read the French theorists, they're very obscure, very difficult to read, and that presents problems, right? Because they're their work is not accessible to a broad range of people, so it's exclusionary. And from a left-wing perspective, you know, historically the left has been committed to ideas of uh, progress, emancipation of people and society, and there's this fear that postmodernism, because it's abandoned those ideas, it's basically quite conservative and overly bleak and pessimistic. From a right-wing perspective, and you've probably seen this articulated by people like uh, Jordan Peterson, for example, uh, there's this idea that we've lost reasonable faith in key foundations, quote-unquote, of uh, Western values and belief systems. And there's a sense that um, people um, are increasingly divided in society. Um, and uh, there's been this kind of growth in, a, in identity politics that's hostile to, to free uh, speech um, and 
it's actually kind of uh, generating a lot of social division. Now, you know, criticisms can be made of both of those sets of criticisms, and I'm very interested to hear what you might think about it. But that's uh, really it. That's um, an overview of postmodernity in just over 30 minutes. Um, so there's a lot more you can read about postmodernity. I place some resources and views that I really recommend that you check out. But I really appreciate um, you listening. And if you have any questions, you know, please uh, reach out to me. We'll be happy to, to clarify anything. Um, or if you want to challenge me on anything that I've said, I'm more than open to a debate or discussion. So thanks everyone and speak soon.